Those of you new to Forest, one thing unique about Forest Community Church is that many of our members are out-of-state transplant Texans. How many of you are from the northern state with the cold, snowy winters? Let me see. All right. So we have a lot of northerners or Texans called Yankees. All right. If you grew up with the snow at Christmas, you know there's nothing quiet like a silence of a cold winter night. This is not just sentimental idea or aesthetic beauty, but actually God's creational design of acoustic reality. Acoustic reality, by that I mean fresh snow observes and uh, dampens sound. Night is usually silent, and snow makes more silent. As a snowy night makes everything silent, it also magnifies our inner sounds. And that's uh, how I think the uh, beloved Christmas hymn, Silent Night and Holy Night, was composed in Austria, not Australia. The composer, Father Joseph Moore, was, uh, you know, planning and pre uh, preparing for Edmund worship service in his uh, uh, small parish church in south of uh, uh, Salzburg in 1818. And then he reflected on the natural phenomenon of a cold winter night with a spiritual insight and wrote the classical song, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm and All is Bright. Today, I want, to talk to, I want to talk about Silent Night of Joseph the Carpenter, the husband of Mary and the human father of Jesus our Lord. Because Joseph's Christmas experience captures the full meaning of a silent night. In fact, the Bible is very much silent about Joseph, except today's story. We don't know much about Joseph other than He's from Nazareth, so he, that means he's a marginalized uh, Galilean Jew. And also his profession was a carpenter. Uh, back then, uh, carpentry was a job of a slave to Romans. So Joseph was a doubly lowly in the world's idea at the time. And unlike Mary, we don't hear any words from Joseph. Uh, Mary at least uh, conversed with the angel Gabriel and uh, Elizabeth. She even composed a song called uh, Magnificat. Joseph, totally silent. But as we will see soon, Joseph played a significant role in the divine drama of uh, incarnation, and he was silent but swiftly obedient. And Bible called him righteous. So today I want to reflect on the meaning of a Christmas from Joseph's experience and obedience so that we also can follow God faithfully in our life, especially when things are not going in our ways. So with that, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. And I'm going to try something new. That is, we're going to read responsibly. So I'll read uh, uh, odd num uh, even number verses. You read uh, odd number verses. For the sake of record, I'm going to read actually with you. So, 
This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to marry to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Flowers fall, grass withers, but the words of God last forever. Amen. Story of Joseph and his Christmas was nothing but a crisis. Crisis. Joseph's experience of Christmas was a crisis after crisis. And today we will see the first and the most heartbreaking crisis Joseph experienced so far in his life. That was betrayal of Mary, which broke his heart. So in order to see Joseph's you know, crisis better, we need to know a little bit about ancient Jewish custom of marriage. Back then, marriage was arranged by fathers. When an eligible girl of 13 and 14 years old was matched to slightly older men, the young man and his father visited the girl and her family. By then, it was almost formality. The father of a girl gave, him, gave the young man a drink, and when young man drank it and gave back to the girl and girl drank, that means marriage started rolling. And two crucial ceremonies to follow. First one is called the betrothal, betrothal, where the groom gave bride and father-in-law a dowry called a moa and also a gift called matan in Hebrew. Uh, Matthew, by the way, is a matan yahu, a mat, sort of gift of God. So once dowry and wedding gifts were accepted, the girl officially became a wife of this young man, except the physical sexual consummation. This first step was called the betrothal. And that's what Mary was at this moment. And uh, NIV translated verse 18, Mary was pledged to, marry, to be married to Joseph. All the English translation, like a New American Standard Bible said, uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So betrothal was a more than engagement today. It was a legal marriage without physical aspect. The second was an actual wedding ceremony. It usually takes about a year from the betrothal. Why? Up to that point, the groom lived with his family or father. And now that he's getting married, he has to prepare the living space or house for his wife. And that's what Joseph was doing. And I bet he was working extra hard as a happy carpenter until he heard the rumor. 
that Mary was pregnant. And according to Luke chapter 1, which we will look at next Sunday, when Mary received the announcement of Angel Gabriel about her supernatural pregnancy, you know, Mary, what did Mary do? First thing Mary did, she went to see her older cousin and kind of spiritual mentor, Pius Elizabeth, in hill country of uh, Judea in the south. And there she stayed for three months, and then she returned. And when she returned, she began to show. And people began to talk. And I bet when Joseph heard the, the rumor, he probably, you know, laughed it as a silly joke or even cringed his face as a sick joke. And probably said, are you kidding me? I know Mary. Mary is not type of girl like that. Well, imagine when Joseph finally saw Mary's tummy. Totally silent, speechless. Joseph couldn't feel anything but totally flabbergasted. Couldn't see anything but darkness. Couldn't hear anything but deafening silence. So Joseph's silent night is what the John of the cross later called dark night of soul. Dark night of soul. And John of Cross, original name Juan de Cruz, he's a, a Spanish a reformer and a mystic in 16th century. He said, silence is the first language of God. Silence is the first language of God. Isn't that so true? When we find God in silence, when we silence our plans and desires and options and thought with a trust, that's when we begin to hear God. So silence is the first language of God. I like that. Now, have you seen a man who was devastated, humiliated, and even betrayed right before his wedding? The saddest wedding I have witnessed in my life was back in college. Forty years ago in Los Angeles, my home uh, my ho home church in Los Angeles uh, was uh, one of the largest uh, uh, Korean uh, churches, uh, in, uh, actually in America, first Korean Baptist church. And it was located by the uh, Olympic environment and from which the Koreatown came out, very historic church. And, as a, uh, and we had a, a discipleship for college student leaders every Saturday, 7 a.m. to 12 p 12, uh, noon. And then after that, we go to a very delicious, inexpensive Chinese noodle place. But because the church is large, there is usually a wedding in the afternoon, sometimes early afternoon. And times like that, we got excited because uh, our church, you know, ladies, WMU, Women's Mission Union, they actually provide the food and whatever profit they get out of the wedding reception food, they donate to the mission cause. And some of these uh, uh, ladies were the mothers of our friends. So, you know, like uh, disciples of Jesus in the wedding feast who are invited to, you know, because of a Mary. You know, when the, those mothers usually say, hey, you guys wait a little bit. And, uh, you know, all day while they're prepared, they, they save some food. And then we go to a classroom and then, you know, we have a very delicious wedding food, you know. So one time I, you know, I, 
you know, there was, there was a little bit of crowd, you know. So I went up and there was, a, you know, I know the wedding was there. He said, oh, today we're going to, it's another good day for us to eat. And then we came down and waiting to wedding to be over. You know, when wedding is over, there's a usually noise, people chattering and, you know, you know, silence, silence. So I went up and I saw the groom covered with his two covered his face with two hands and a few people around him and then put their hands in the shoulder and sobbing. His bride didn't come and uh, found out that that was a plan all along. So he was totally caught by surprise. And then, you know, one of our friend's mother said, hey, you guys come and eat. Food was good, but no one enjoyed it. What do you do when you are in the dark, cold, silent night like that? Joseph's first experience of Christmas was sad, mad, and bad silence. Today, through Joseph's story, you and I can learn how we can be, live faithfully and meaningfully in such a crisis and devastation of life. Today's story about Joseph's silent night teaches us three crucial things that comfort us and also confirms us. The three Christmas messages that Matthew was communicating us, the first one is that the uh, first Christmas message to everyone who is a silent night is to know that God continues to create good things out of nothing. So, continuation of a creation. God is not done with the creation, but continue to care for the creation with a new creation. And this is a very important truth and initial thought that we must remember in our silent night. Why? Often when we are stuck in the silent night, we feel like everything else and everyone else is also stuck. Well, because I'm stuck in life, that doesn't mean God is also not moving. Actually, when we are stuck, that's the time that we start seeing God stepping in and steering. So remember this truth. Though I'm stuck, God is still sovereign, and he is our good shepherd. Amen? While I'm preparing uh, this message, I just found out this week that a Roman Catholic church called the 2021 Year of St. Joseph. Did you know? Obviously, you know, I didn't, you know. And then uh, Pope Francis wrote a special apostolic letter to St. Joseph. And today I'm going to quote some of those letters. First, Pope Francis said this, Even, though Joseph, uh, even through Joseph's fears, God's will, his history, and his plan were at work. Joseph then teaches us that faith in God includes believing that he can work even through our fears, our frailties, and our weaknesses. He also teaches us that amid the tempest of life, we must never be afraid to let the Lord steer our course. At times, we want to be in complete control. Yet God always sees the bigger picture. 
So what is the bigger picture here? That is God's continuing care for his creation. So look at the verse 18. This is how birth of Jesus, Messiah, came about. And his mother, Mary, was pledged to marry to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. The key word in this, past, in this verse is the birth and the Holy Spirit. The word, Greek word for birth of Jesus is a Genesis. And this word actually appeared earlier in the verse 1. This is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The word for genealogy is also Genesis. So here, Matthew is connecting the birth or Genesis of Jesus to creation story of Genesis chapter 1. You know, verse 1, do you remember in the beginning God creates heaven and earth? And then the earth was formless and empty and the darkness was the surface of a deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. As God's first creation came to exist through the presence and patience of the Holy Spirit, who was hovering over, kind of taming the chaotic waters like a hen hatching an egg, Holy Spirit was upon Mary for the genesis or birth of a Son of God in human flesh. And this is the first Christmas message that Matthew wants to communicate to us. And here, Matthew wants to make it clear that process of Jesus' conception is unique and different in contrast to Greek and Roman stories of God and their incarnation. You know, Romans and Greek gods often uh, assume the form of a, a human male to have an intercourse with a beautiful woman, resulting in the birth of a demigods or demigod heroes like Hercules. By the way, we have a Livingstone Bible study, one of our you know, curriculum. When you take it, you will learn the full uniqueness of a Christian understanding of incarnation. And we're going to offer in January, so be you know, commercial, side commercial. Okay. Matthew was telling us that Mary's conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit was not sexual, but creative. It was not sexual, but creative. Holy Spirit is spiritual, personal being, not a sexual, material being. So even linguistically, a, se- a very seminal New Testament scholar named uh, Raymond Brown, who wrote a magma opus, this thick book of uh, you know, birth of Jesus Christ, birth of a Messiah, points out linguistically the spirit in Hebrew, ruach, is a feminine. And uh, uh, the uh, spirit in, in Greek word, pneuma, is a neuter. So even linguistically, Holy Spirit is not a mus- masculine. So there's a nothing, you know, uh, uh, feminine Mary and masculine Holy Spirit kind of uh, making, you know, uh, love. John of Damascus, 7th century uh, great early church father, he explained this in this way. In the former times, that means uh, Old Testament, God who is without form uh, or body could never be depicted or described. But now when God is seen in the flesh conversing with men, I make image of God whom I see. He's talking about it's okay to make an icon. That means a holy painting about Jesus. It's not a, you know, a violation of a second commandment. 
two weeks ago, do you guys remember? We, you know, we studied about Exodus 20, first and two, first and second commandment of God. And God said, do not worship in me any kind of a material, creaturely form. Now, because God became human, we can actually ignore that commandment and we can worship God visually. So now we learn, you know, uh, now God became a material, you know, uh, material creature to save us and we can worship God concretely, visibly in human form. Now, I want, my number one uh, a prayer for the message in every Christmas, once again this Christmas, is that we discover this scandalous significance of God's incarnation. Because, you know, this is such a well-known story. <laughs> You ask any pastor, what is the you know, uh, uh, most difficult time to preach? I've been preaching for three decades, Christmas. Everybody knows Christmas, right? It's like, uh, you know, you ask a famous chef, chef to oh, make the best sandwich or best, you know, uh, hamburger. You know, Christmas is such a well-known story. There's not much surprise left, Right? But that doesn't mean we don't appreciate this very unique, divine manifestation of his love for us. So, Frederick Buchanan, a well-known American you know, Christian writer, he said this, Incarnation is a kind of a vast joke whereby the creator of end of the earth comes among us in diapers until we too take the idea of a God-man seriously enough to be scandalized by it, we have not taken it seriously as it demands to be taken. Bokana is absolutely right. Christmas is a God's cosmic joke. God came to us in diapers. Unless we see this scandalous nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, we don't understand its significance and seriousness, and more than anyone, Joseph encountered, experienced the scandal of the incarnation of Jesus in the most personal and painful way. So now let us see how Joseph responded to the scandal of Mary's conception. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, yet did not want to expose her to the public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he considered that, angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. You know, when I read this story for the first time, I wonder, why in the world God didn't tell Joseph before the Holy Spirit came upon Mary? Why did the angel of the Lord appear to Joseph after he considered? Why not before? Right? The reason for that is the second Christmas message that Matthew wants us to, wants to communicate us this. Christmas is all about God's compassion. It's all about God's compassion. And here Matthew shows us 
what biblical righteousness truly is. Verse 19 tells us that Joseph was faithful to the law. Greek text is very clear, simple. Joseph was righteous. Joseph was righteous. And here we learn righteousness is more than legal or contractual. It is relational and covenantal. Righteousness in the Bible means covenantal faithfulness. Covenantal faithfulness. It goes above and beyond the letters of the, uh, letters of the law. It actually goes deeper in the spirit of the law, which is love. And the foundation of God's law is love. God loved us. That's why he gave us his law. So let us get the righteousness right. Being biblically righteous does not mean being right. It means being loving, being compassionate, being faithful. Amen? So now let's see how Joseph demonstrated righteousness. You know, according to Deuteronomy 22:23, Joseph was actually commanded by Moses to expose Mary and her sex partner in public and execute them in the name of social order. So let me read Deuteronomy 22. If a man happens to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married, such as a Mary, he sleeps with her, you shall take both of them to the gate of that town, that means a public square, and stone them to death, the young, man, young woman, because she was in town and did not scream for help, the man, who, who, man because he violated another man's wife. You must purge the evil from among you. So when Bible said, after Joseph has considered, it means it was a struggle. Painful self-surrender. And costly love to let go of your dream. So Joseph, even though he was heartbroken, chose to love Mary to the end. And this last act as a husband is forgiving her and giving a second chance to live her life without exposing her to public you know, danger or disgrace. And then, that's the precise time, the angel of the Lord came to Joseph for the first time. And then he said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. And then tells her full information. Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, why did the you know, angel tell Joseph not to be afraid? First, angel was telling Joseph that you're not breaking the law. You know, even though you're breaking the law, commandment of Moses, God knows your heart, and you're not breaking the law. And there is another thing. Actually taking Mary to home, this alleged adulterer, adulteress to home, is actually a huge scandal and public disgrace. I bet Joseph has to continue to fight the public opinion of our town people. Can you imagine what town people say about, you know, Joseph and Mary? You know, some people say, well, I thought Joseph was mild. I didn't know he was a backboneless. Or somebody said, oh, he must be really desperate. Or someone said, well, uh, finally a promiscuous, you know, promiscuous girl got her pathetic match. I bet the rumor and gossip followed Joseph and Mary all their life, 
And uh, I think it's not uh, my imagination because you know what? In the early church, pagan polemic writings about Jesus started usually and paint Mary as a Jewish trash. Sorry, excuse my language. You know. And Joseph as a coward. Coward. But to us, Joseph is an icon of a compassion and kindness. You know, it's not easy to be icon of a compassion and kindness. He had to endure public misunderstanding and all kind of, a, you know, a, a name calling behind his back. You know, well-known uh, Texas uh, uh, pastor named uh, Max Lucaro once said this, I chose kindness. I'll be kind to the poor, for they are alone. I'll, I'll be kind to the rich, for they are afraid. And I'll be, most of all, this is the last statement, this is what touches me. I'll be kind to the unkind, for such is how God treated me. You know, greatest gift of a Christmas that we can give to each other is a being kind. Amen. And the life of a holiness, I want to bring now back again this uh, uh, Pope Francis, you know, writing that the, uh, it's not devoid of a fear or suffering. That was the, that this was true even for Joseph and Mary. You know, what makes a Joseph such a model for us is not that he was fearless, but against his fear, he trusted God. And then he had to do a lot of many things that are difficult and probably something he never intended. But he trusted God and obeyed God, and he acted swiftly. And then we'll see more, you know, uh, two weeks from now. We will return to Joseph. And, but the key is this. When we give our fear, when we give God our fears and frailties and weaknesses, that's when God can transform us for his glory. Now, there is a one more commandment from the angel of the Lord, which is the third Christmas message and meaning for us. Verse 21, angel said, She will give a birth to a son, and Joseph, you are to name him Jesus, because Jesus means, Joshua means Yahweh saves, and that he will save his people from their sins. Here, an angel told Joseph not only to take Mary as his wife, but also name her son Jesus. What's the significance of naming Mary's son? The third you know, uh, uh, message is this. Here, God is actually commissioning Joseph to adopt Jesus as his legitimate Heir. This is a commissioning. Why? Joseph was a descendant of David, whereas Mary was not. Mary was a cousin of Elizabeth, right? And according to Luke chapter 1 5, Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. So most likely, Mary is from the tribe of a Levite. And uh, God promised the Messiah will come in the line of David. That's why people called the Messiah son of David. 
So Jesus was not born of a, a woman who is the Davidic descendant. Now she's a marrying one. So Joseph has to adopt Jesus. Now, uh, first, you know, by, you know uh, Matthew, the, the first part of the, uh, Matthew chapter 1 talks about genealogy of Jesus, right? And what is the repeating phrase? So-and-so becomes the fathers of so-and-so, right? Literally in Greek, so-and-so begets so-and-so, so-and-so begets so-and-so. So, you know, John beget, you know, Steve, Steve beget, uh, Philip, Philip beget. You know, that, that's the, you know, the genealogy of Jesus. That pattern breaks in verse 16. Look at the verse 16. Jacob, father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was a mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. Do you see that? Jacob beget Joseph, and Joseph didn't beget Jesus. Then how did Jesus become a son of Joseph? Because Joseph married Jesus' mother Mary. That means Joseph adopted Jesus. There's no biological connection between Jesus and Joseph. It was nothing but volitional, legal, you know, connection. Joseph is not father of Jesus, husband of Jesus' mother. So legally, what is a Joseph to Jesus? He's a stepfather or adoptive father. And here is the amazing grace of God's commission. Before God adopted us to be his children through Jesus Christ and his atoning death on the cross, God asked Joseph to adopt son of God as his legal son. Do you see that? God never asked us to do something he would not do for us. Amen? And Joseph, wonderful thing about Joseph, silently, swiftly obeyed his God's commission. And uh, then now Matthew brings the sort of theological uh, comment and conclusion. Verse 22. All this took place, what the Lord has said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give a birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord said, had commanded him. Took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave a birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Here. I know I already preached about 30 minutes, but uh, you, have to, you have to put your mind in a very uh, sharp angle because we have to deal with uh, some critical issue that clarify uh, about our understanding of a prophecy. Matthew here, in his theological you know, comment about uh, Jesus being a son of God or Emmanuel, he cited Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 7. And then with Isaiah chapter 7, he brings one of his many you know, uh, patterns in the gospel that this is how prophecy was fulfilled. You know, that is a kind of you know, uh, uh, the characteristic of the uh, gospel of Matthew. Now, let me read uh, Matthew, uh, Isaiah chapter 7. And uh, this is, you tell me whether this text actually sounds like a prophecy, okay? 
So Isaiah chapter 7. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, the king of Judah. Ask the Lord your, uh, your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depth or in the highest height. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. The context is this. Judah was attacked by Israel, northern kingdom, and his ally Aram. And uh, so God you know, sent Isaiah to King Ahaz that, uh, ask me any sign that I'll be with you and protect you. Ahaz sounds like a man of faith. No, he already asked Assyria, the more powerful nation in the Far East, to come out and help. So he said, I'll not put you in the you know, test. That's a total pious you know, uh, excuse. He said, I don't need you, God. I already covered. Your, your service is not needed. That's what he's saying. And then God said, Isaiah said, that here now, or your house of David, is not enough to try the patience of humans, will not try the patience of my God also. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give a birth to a son, and he will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey with a, when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and, wrong and choose the right, the land of two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you, on your people, on the house of your father, a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah, he will bring the king of Assyria. So Isaiah prophesied, very soon a child will be born, and before the child become a little older than toddler, so he can, you know, toddler is dangerous. To, babies is dangerous to eat honey, right? So little mature, and then, because what? King of Assyria will come, and he will destroy the Samaria and the Aram, and also he will, he will, he will, you know, he will make you suffer. That prophecy actually came very soon. Now, two problems with the Matthew citation. One, the word choice, the other one is a context. The word choice, verse 14, he said virgin, right? The Hebrew word for virgin is alma. And uh, in Hebrew dictionary, alma is a simply young woman. Not all young women are virgin, right? So, but in the Greek text, it is a virgin. Now, I, 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 this word Alma in, in Hebrew, I, I checked all the references. It, was not, uh, it didn't mention it in the Bible, in the Old Testament much. But every time the Alma actually pointed the actual person, they are all virgins. For instance, Genesis chapter 24, 43, when the, uh, Abraham's old, you know, old servant went to look for uh, you know wife of Isaac, you know, he prayed that God, you know, when he arrived at Abraham's hometown, he said, God, I'm going to pray that whoever, you know, young maiden comes in the, this well and not only give us water, but give a water to these poor animals, such a compassionate person will be wife of my master, young master. That, was, that word maiden is Alma. And obviously, he will not, he will not bring a non-virgin to his master, Right? And Exodus chapter 2, verse 8, when, uh, uh, you know, the princess of Egypt saw baby Moses in the small basket 
in the river, and uh, she felt compassion. And then, you know, uh, Moses has this very smart older sister named uh, Miriam, and she, I suspect that she actually put that in there. So, you know, floating near the Egyptian princess. So when Egyptian princess became a, you know, very, has a human compassion for this, you know, dying uh, Jewish baby, Miriam took, seized a moment and went up to her and said that, ah, this is a Jewish boy, a Hebrew boy, and the Hebrew mothers know how to take care of it. Do you want me to go get the, the one Hebrew mother to be a, a nursing mother for whatever this baby for you? The word, the girl, refers to Miriam is Alma. Another one, just the last one, Song of Solomon, all the maidens will love you. You know, this we are talking about virgins loving the song, King, uh, King Solomon. So, even though Alma, you know, uh, linguistically is a kind of open and ambiguous, and not exclusively it means a virgin, but it actually contains the overwhelming idea is a virgin. And that's why when Jewish rabbis translate the Hebrew Bible into Greek Bible 200 years before Christ, when they came to this passage, they have a two Greek words. They can put a you know, Greek word, there's a, uh, what is that? I, I didn't put, uh, neanis, young woman. But instead of neanis, they put parthenos, virgin. Okay? And here it is. For Matthew, when he read the Greek Bible, and this phrase, virgin will give a child, his name will be Emmanuel, Matthew, for him, it's like a, you know, perfect food somebody put on the plate and give to him and say, that will explain virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees it and brought it. Okay? He used it. Now, second problem is the context. You know, that context there of Isaiah's you know, prophecy has uh, nothing to do with actually Jesus, other than, you know, Matthew used it, right? Do you think Isaiah, when he made that immediate prophecy to King Ahaz, do you think Isaiah thought, oh, yeah, you know, 700 years later, this will be about prophecy about the Messiah. Do you think Isaiah knew? Ah, come on. You know, Isaiah didn't know. All right. Let me tell you, let me clarify, let me, let me bring a conclusion. Very critical issue. You should know, biblical prophecy have many colors and shades. Some of them is a crystal clear, like a high definition, pinpointing, precise, such as a Micah predicting the birthplace of a Messiah to be Bethlehem. That is a you know, clear cut. Whereas Isaiah's prophecy it's a prefigure. It's a foreshadowing. Isaiah has no idea. It was a later writer sees this idea and connected to Jesus. Do you follow? All right. No, I'm checking is anyone sleeping because but you all seem to be a good listener. So let me, let me. When you come to biblical prophecy, we need to recognize one thing. What is the ultimate writer? of uh, Bible, Scripture. We confess. Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. 
It is the Holy Spirit who is the ultimate author of the, you know, God's redemptive story for us. So you, you should recognize that the Bible is a fully human and fully divine. Fully human means the biblical writers record their, their experience and their witness of God with their own personal colors and cultural context. It's a fully divine because the Holy Spirit used that to connect it. So biblical prophecy is, has a many colors and shades. Okay? So some are pinpointing, some are prefigural, foreshadowing, like Isaiah. Now, let me, let me come back to, let me come back to the, let, let, let me bring the conclusion. God gave Joseph a great honor of adopting Jesus as son because Joseph was simply a descendant of David. And on this Advent Sunday, or in then our anticipation of a Christmas Sunday next week, I want to affirm the holy vocation of all fathers and mothers. I want to ask every parent to recognize your holy vocation as a parents of a God's infant and child and rededicate yourself to God's call to raise your child not just as your own flesh and blood, but a God's special gift to the world. So let me quote one more from the Pope Francis. He said this, Fathers are not born, but made. A man does not become a father simply by bringing a child into the world, but by taking up responsibility to care for the child. Whenever a man accepts responsibility for the life of another, in some way, he becomes a father to that person. Fatherhood is not so much about the physical procreation. It actually involves a cultivation of a family and a human person. It means providing for spiritual and the physical well-being of others. And that's why, you know, we call the priest what? Roman Catholic Church, Anglican Church, what do they call priest? Father. Father. Fathers are priests. Because they nourish them, they protect them. All the parents, all the fa especially fathers, today is a father. Do you know you are priests to your children? Do you know you are priests? If you, you know, all fathers in forest, say with me, I am priests for my children. Amen. One, two, three. I am a priest for my children. I want to say, actually, I'm a priest for God's children, but that's, you know, let me narrow to your children. So, I, one, two, three. I am a priest for my children. We fathers represent God to our children. And we, true fathers, not just, you know, guide them to, guide them their, their academic journeys, athletic journey. A lot of suburban fathers there think their role is to help their kid until they go to good college. You know what? That is a, you know, God actually don't care about that. What God cares is about journeying, helping our kids, our children to journey, their spiritual journey to know God and follow God. Church definitely needs fathers too. 
not only families, but also church and society. Society cannot exist, thrive without a healthy and holy fathers. You know, we have to recognize this. God didn't give a you know, baby Jesus much. But God gave him loving mother and faithful father. Think about that. God didn't spare much. Jesus from all the you know, suffering. God, you know, he was born poor, you know, destitute, you know, you name it. Incredibly inconvenient and unrecognized. But God the Father knew the importance of a family. Hallelujah. So on this Advent season, mothers and fathers, let's recognize that if God chose to enter the world through a family and obedient foster father like Joseph, and next week, sacrificial mother like Mary, how much more? We should care for our children. Not only our physical children. What about spiritual children? Even if you have your own physical children, we have children in Sunday school, and also we have children in our house churches, those who began to you know, know God. Let me read a final uh, 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 quote today. Pope Francis said this, Each one of us can discover in Joseph the man who goes unnoticed, a daily discreet and hidden presence, an intercessor, a support, a guide in times of trouble. Saint Joseph reminds us that those who appear hidden or in the shadows can play incomparable role in the history of our salvation. So well said. Throughout the redemptive history, God repeatedly chosen the least likely people to accomplish his will. Moses was a slow to speech. And Peter was a fisherman. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Joseph was a carpenter. What, all this doesn't matter to God. Our status, our accolade, our prestige, our mightiness, it doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is our obedience. Joseph modeled that in every moment is a life from accepting Mary into his home and naming his son, her son, Jesus, and then later we'll see fleeing to Egypt and returning to Nazareth. Nazareth. And Joseph truly teaches us obedience and faithfulness. So, dear forest people, Whatever silent night you're going through, God is doing something amazing in this world. God still cares about us, and God's still re redeeming and recreating. He called us to serve. And maybe our exact dream didn't come out the way that we expected, but when we are faithfully obedient to God, like Joseph, we will have a shining legacy for the glory of God. Let's pray.